I'd like to talk about five factors or qualities of mind called the five specifying factors or perhaps determining factors or tools of human development. Probably the second group on that sheet and Stephen has also posted another drawing there. Earlier we have been looking at consciousness being made up of a number of different basic features. The ability to feel, to experience. The ability to move toward or away from or to intend. The ability to hold or to focus. And the ability to perceive, to organize, to discern. And it's some of these basic features of consciousness that develop, that can or do develop into some of the most important human faculties or qualities of the human mind. We have looked at ignorance at work, and also at the other kleshas that come out of it, desire, aversion, conceit, and so forth. And now we'll look at the qualities it takes to tackle these thieves of klesha, what it takes to engage in a meaningful practice. It's not just the aspects of the past itself we are looking at here, but rather at what enables us to function as intelligent human beings and what specifically can be useful and helpful for a practice. Looking at the qualities that make spiritual practice at all possible. They are aspiration, appreciation or determination, mindfulness or recollection, concentration, and intelligence or wisdom. And they're called specifying factors because they have more specific objects than the basic makeup of consciousness. They're more refined than the basic five. In themselves, they're neither wholesome nor unwholesome. They become wholesome or unwholesome depending on what they're applied to, depending on the other mental factors that arise together with them. And an example for concentration and attention could be a cat waiting one-pointedly for a mouse to catch and kill it, or a hunter aiming at an animal. I would be 
concentration and attention in an unwholesome setting because of the unwholesome intention behind it. On the other hand, the concentration of a healer or a doctor trying to save someone's life, that would be concentration in a wholesome setting with wholesome motivation or intention behind it. And in similar ways, all the other five can be either wholesome or unwholesome. And it's through these five qualities or determining factors that we define and judge ourselves as intelligent beings. And it's through them we determine values, direction and purpose in our lives. For example, we determine our ethics in a positive or in a negative sense. It's those qualities that allow for commitment, for consistency, ability to follow through with our actions, again, for better or worse. They are the mind's ability to learn, to acquire knowledge, to reason and to understand intellectually or on a more intuitive level. And here I'd like mostly to look at their significance in respect to our practice. The first one is aspiration. Aspiration is to see something as valuable and then wishing to realize it. It's taking a real interest in something. It aspires to something. Or it could be simply, as an example, it could be aspiring to being present, to being mindful moment to moment. Or more in a more general sense, a more complex sense, having become acutely aware of the fear and suffering of the samsaric mode of being, we might begin to aspire to a whole new way of being in life. And in that change of direction, we could say, we take as our new direction or inspiration, or we aspire to Buddha, the quality of being awake, awakeness, or our own inner potential for freedom, for liberation. We aspire to Dharma, we aspire to an understanding and a being in tune with reality. We aspire to Sangha, or we aspire to a sense of connectedness with life, perhaps with all of life. So it's that giving of direction in our practice 
that aspiration takes care of in a way. In Mahayana Buddhism, there is an acknowledgement of different levels of aspiration in one's spiritual practice, in one's life, perhaps. It's referred to as the three scopes, or perhaps the three kinds of human capacity. The lower or the more ordinary one is the aspiration for a better life after this one, traditionally speaking. To develop and generate the good qualities and tendencies, good karma, I could say, that will result in a fortunate future life, fortunate conditions in a future life. And I like to think that also the most often expressed aspiration and motive that I found among Western Dharma practitioners is perhaps included in this kind of scope. That's a bit different. The aspiration for this very life here to be better, to be more sane, more sensitive, and more free for each one of us. So, in both of these cases, what's going on is actually really to get our karmic act together. Both those aspirations are certainly legitimate, very worthwhile, and yet both seem a little bit somewhat shallow, given the fact that any better situation, whether it's in this life or it's in another life, can and will so easily change again into something else, which again might be more difficult, more painful. The middling scope is the aspiration for the liberation of oneself. You could also say the aspiration for a true nirvana. It's a much higher aspiration that doesn't stop short of bringing to a complete end both karma, the conditioned activities, and klesha, all the negative unwholesome factors that I've been talking about and looking at. It's an amazing aim. If you just try to imagine a, per- a person that's totally free of desire and attachment, of aversion and resistance, a person that's really free of any sense of separateness, would be really a saint, a person that's whole, that's complete, that's free from any kind of inner psychological suffering. You just imagine the love, the compassion, the wisdom in such a person. And yet the possibilities don't stop here. What is seen and considered as being the highest scope or the highest human aspiration, is that of the Bodhisattva, 
as someone who is aspiring to come to terms with the kleshas and to realize liberation in order to be of greatest benefit for others, be of greatest benefit for all of life. And that, again, traditionally means aspiring to actual Buddhahood, where one has not only eliminated the klesha and any further obstruction to complete understanding of life, but has also perfected all the human qualities such as generosity, integrity, acceptance, enthusiasm, concentration, wisdom, and so forth. Be a being that's fully awakened, be the ideal being. And it's what's called bodhicitta, that's the spark or the starting point for this kind of possibility, for this kind of scope. Bodhicitta is the point in one's development where one's concern for oneself is transcended or transformed into the wish and aspiration to be of benefit to others. And we'll go into this a little bit more in a day or two. So it's aspiration that really is the basis for all our efforts, for all our undertakings, be it worldly or spiritual. Perhaps it could be helpful to just distinguish aspiration from wanting. And a very small example from our meditation would be that we really aspire to come to a deeper understanding. And then as we meditate, we start striving, we start needing, we start looking for something, wanting to achieve, wanting to get, and thereby turning practice into more of a struggle. So aspiration is a clear direction in which we move, it's some a direction which inspires us to move in, while desire is a grasping, a reaching out for someone that for something that isn't, for something that we aren't, and it's painful. It's again the, this samsaric drivenness. Instead we aspire to grow in our practice, but we do it by really being fully with what is, looking into what is, questioning, inquiring, not by yearning for or by wanting something that isn't. Also it seems that we aspire for something we don't know yet in some way. It's an idea, it's an imagination, an imagination. So it's also in that aspiration, it's important not to fix it in a certain way, not to have a fixed idea of what it is that we're moving towards. 
because that then can become a hindrance. It can block us from seeing. It can hinder us in realizing that which we aspire to. So on one hand, it seems that we must do our best developing all the wholesome qualities, such as awareness, such as acceptance and openness, love and compassion. And yet, on the other hand, all we can do somehow is being present and ready for life to reveal itself, for insight perhaps just to to come upon us. We can't make or do enlightenment or freedom. So perhaps we should even question the whole idea of development, or at least look into it. This sense where we keep on getting better in our practice and in our development, better and better and better and better and better until one day we're perfect and then sort of bang, something happens and we got it. Is that really realistic? And how good do we have to get? Will we have to be perfect before freedom is possible? Is perfection even imaginable? And how long would it take us? Or is perhaps freedom outside of all the conditions, no matter how many good, positive, and wholesome conditions we can accumulate? Is it perhaps on cost? Just an interesting question on the side. So we have appreciation, uh, we have aspiration, and then the second, next quality is appreciation or determination. Perhaps it's just the next step in the same movement we begin to appreciate what we aspire to. We aspire to something, then move in that direction. Doing it feels right, and appreciation comes in. We practice, and doing so, we notice our life becomes clearer, fuller, richer, even in being with difficulties and negativities. So we start to appreciate that kind of practice. And that in turn, turn again, strengthens what we do. We practice in doing so, we experience the liberating effects of certain insights that come to us. And again, appreciation comes in and in turn supports that practice. Now, there seem to be times when our practice loses momentum, when we need fresh inspiration. We might need a contact with someone to reawaken that which we aspire for. Might read a book or hear a teaching that inspires us. 
or perhaps something happens to us, a birth or a death, something that really touches and we are reminded. For me, seeing people opening and deepening when I teach retreats, that's very inspiring. It really brings up a lot of appreciation. I think it's important to work. We must work on this aspect of inspiring ourselves, of finding appreciation for what we do again and again. And we can cultivate aspiration and appreciation. We can do it by, through effort, purposely intensifying our practice, really bringing it to life in the retreat. That could be by being more careful or slowing down or sitting longer, walking longer. We're really in a very full, making really a new commitment to being very full and very total. It's to just reflect also on our own and others' practice and rejoice in that, feeling good about what we do, instead of constantly judging and evaluating and condemning, thinking about what doesn't work out the way we want it or it should. It's nice if sometimes you want to come, sign up for an interview and just come and tell us how inspiring it is. That would be okay with me, I don't know about you. And talk a little about all the aspects that really, uh, you know, bring up appreciation and all that. I mean, it's fine if you have problems, that's important to talk over too, but just sometimes we forget that. And sometimes we get into this whole mode of where we almost practice judgmentality. And we don't really need that if we have enough of it. So to sit down and say, okay, this, you know, I sh- wish I had less thoughts, and I wish I were more quiet, and I wish I had more concentration, I wish I would finally understand, and I don't. And if we have to do that kind of thing, we could just sit there and think, oh, wonderful, I'm, I'm in a retreat, I actually came here, I'm really doing it. Also, I feel we should take jading as a warning signal. When we think of our practice and its purpose, and somehow it leaves us cool. I mean, I don't think we have to be all the time enthusiastic about it. I don't think that's possible. But if there's a general sense of it starts to leave us indifferent. And again, what we have mentioned number of times, we can use reflection on the preciousness of this moment, the fact that we are born in this human realm and not in any of the others Stephen mentioned, to have that human opportunity, be intelligent enough to find interest and start to understand what's going on in terms of suffering and freedom that we have the interest, that we have the outer material freedom to come to a place like this and study and practice. 
You have to leisure to do this. Also to appreciate the opportunity here, the people who make this possible and the whole group that supports us. It's quite, it's quite special. We can reflect on the fact that this moment, this situation is also quite fragile and very fleeting. As the Indian sage Nagarjuna puts it, our life is so fragile, it's like bubbles blown to and fro by the wind. And he says, how astonishing are those who think that after, one, after an out-breath, they will surely breathe in again. Or how astonishing are those who think that after a night's sleep, they will wake up again. I guess we're all astonishing. <laughs> I think, you know, I will be around tomorrow morning. I will have another in-breath. And yet we don't know. We actually don't know. And if we just let ourselves sometimes be touched by that, that sparks a new interest, a new inspiration, a new appreciation for what we're doing. It can help to reflect on all the suffering in our life, in the life of others, suffering on the planet, I feel it's quite important for me to go to third world countries every so often. I've been there for years, I know they're, they're there and I know how it is, and yet when I go there, it's very different. Going to India once a year, I, I get there and it literally blows my mind each time after so many years. Go to hospital. My wife works at the hospital and sometimes she just tells me about what's going on there. And it touches. Seeing my old parents, or seeing myself for that matter, seeing how the body deteriorates, the senses deteriorate. To again be inspired to realize that somebody needs to come to an understanding. Someone needs to come to an understanding of it all, all which causes the endless outer conflicts, of what causes the endless inner violence. It's also worthwhile reflecting on the fact that all our actions inevitably will have results. Like the waves and ripples that spread out in all directions when we throw a stone or a rock into water. What we think, our attitude, what we say, what we do, how we do it, matters greatly for ourselves and for others, now and in the future. And it's not, we know, and we've heard it many times, and yet it's to consider it over and over again. In the Tibetan tradition, there's something that's called preliminary practices. 
And it's something one contemplates over and over and over again. And it's mostly those four aspects that I've been touching on. It's important to remember all that, to be in touch with it. We reflect on it to inspire ourselves, to appreciate more fully what fantastic thing it really is that we can practice the Dharma, and to rejoice in our aspirations, in our practice, in our virtues, in our goodness, in our own qualities. The next three aspects are more immediately linked to actual practice. There's mindfulness or recollection, and a lot has been said about it already. Maybe I can look at it from a slightly different angle. It's the quality of mind that enables us to remember and stay with a certain object. It enables us to keep in mind what we set out to do. It's that which also can keep us in the present moment. It's that presence of mind, if that's how we apply mindfulness or recollection. It's the ability to recollect some past event. It also means to remember. And in this system here, it does refer also to memory, to recollecting in that sense. And therefore, here too, it's not necessarily wholesome. One could reflect on a moment of anger, feel angry again, and be mindful of that. On the other hand, could recollect the moment of generosity, or be mindful in it moment of generosity or rejoice in generosity, that would be wholesome. Imagine a thief sneaking into a house by night, very carefully, very concentrated, very mindfully, and that not being necessarily a wholesome state of mind. Mindfulness is also that which helps us to Remember the values we hold, the commitments we made in practice, for example. So again, in a small example, in our commitments to sitting still, to keeping the silent, to staying present, or our commitments in a more general sense. That which helps us to be sensitive, aware, and present in our actions, in what we're going to say, how we react, what we're going to do. It does the remembering of the guidelines, being honest, saying what is helpful instead of saying that which hurts and harms. Does the restraining, the remembering that we want to restrain ourselves from violence and from causing harm to others in any way. So it's a very important factor of mind that enables us to establish and keep our ethical 
foundation or Sheila. And the very sound ethical foundation is absolutely a necessary precondition for any kind of spiritual practice and growth. For meditation to be effective, for concentration to deepen, for a life that is in tune, in harmony with reality. And that's why, at the beginning of the retreat, we committed ourselves to, cer- to certain guidelines, just not killing, not harming, not taking, sexual insensitivity, no lying, no drugs, no intoxicants. If we want to implement these attitudes or guidelines, perhaps, these ways of behavior into all of our life, not just into the retreat, but in our life altogether, which I personally feel is absolutely necessary if we want to develop our practice outside what we're just doing here. Then again, it's a function of mindfulness that enables us to do that, that helps us to remember, to recollect what we said how to do. It's also waking up to what's going on at every moment. It's also what helps us to deal with negativities as they arise in the mind, unskillful thoughts and emotions, as we saw last night, as we hopefully see in the meditation. Mindfulness also has the power to bring about, to strengthen, to bring together positive qualities of mind. Being aware, waking up, being present, tends to lead to more clarity, to clear seeing, and thus understanding and wisdom, like I'm saying. But equally, it's that which helps strengthening such positive qualities as love and care, compassion, joy, and trust. If we apply it, if we apply ourselves in that direction. Mindfulness is also instrumental in developing concentration, which is the next factor or quality on our list. Concentration could be said to be the ability to sustain one's attention. And in terms of our meditation here, we could say concentration is the continuity of our moment-to-moment mindfulness. The more tightly knit the continuity of the moment-to-moment mindfulness is, the more that is steadiness, focus and concentration of mind. Stability of mind, in a way. And it's something we all have. We can listen quite one-pointedly to some talk or some music or some conversation, as long as we're interested in it. 
I can be quite strong, quite focused. And in a way, it's just to connect with that ability and to strengthen it. And that's really what it means to practice. We come here, this is an exercising room, much like in this uh, fitness center. It's a mind fitness center, in a way. There's an analogy, or the analogy of practice and what it takes. Another example I got from Stephen. I don't know where it comes from, beyond Stephen. A woodsman who wants to chop the root of a tree needs a strong body, a steady aim, and a sharp axe. And it's an analogy for a practice in the sense that a strong body would refer to the ethical, to the strong ethical foundation that we have and that we develop. A steady aim that correspond to a focused, concentrated, steady mind. And the sharp axe would refer to the sharp blade of wisdom, that when there's a clear, steady, seeing insight, wisdom, understanding can arise out of that and cuts whatever karma, klesha, is rooted, you could say maybe rooted in the ignorance, or rooted in the mind because of ignorance. That's really in a way those three things that they practice. Ethical foundation, the steadiness and concentration of mind, and a clear looking and a clear seeing that comes out of it. Another example for concentration and awareness and clear seeing, you'd have a lamp or if you had a candle that illumines an otherwise dark room, you could say the light itself is the awareness, it's the light itself that makes things visible. The fact that it would shine with a steady flame without flickering in the wind, that would be compared to concentration or steadiness of mind. So it's quite an important quality of practice, allows to see in a sustained way more clearly what's going on. This mindful concentration can be applied to the moment-to-moment experience as we do it here. Seeing and understanding the mind's way of functioning and the specific nature of each experience, specific nature of things. Seeing and understanding the general or deeper nature 
such as it's being in constant change, constantly coming and going, seeing clearly its insubstantiality. It's that kind of application of concentration that we have in Vipassana in general, in this type of Vipassana we're practicing here. But that kind of concentration can also be applied to one fixed object or one specific point. <clears throat> can develop into one-pointedness, develop into deep concentration, even absorption or jhana, or jhana. Very powerful, profound states of mind of peace and equanimity and stability. <clears throat> and they're certainly extremely helpful in making the mind firm and stable. Imagine that kind of mind that really stays with something. <clears throat> and it can create the perfect, the perfect condition for clear seeing and insight. And yet in themselves, uh, deep concentration states, states of absor- absorption, they're not the solution to the problems of existence. Since they do not lead in themselves to freedom, they can feel incredibly wonderful, spacious, peaceful, and free, and yet They don't have the power to uproot the problems we always come up against, which are the clashes. To really get at the root of the problem, we need insight or wisdom. And it's the refinement of intelligence, the fifth of these specifying factors, That's a very crucial quality of mind. It's very crucial because it's the key to understanding, the key to seeing through the misperception, the illusion, which lies at the root of all our problems and of suffering. And again, it's not something we don't have. We have a basic intelligence, but Again, we need to cultivate it further. We could see it as there being four kinds. The innate intelligence, and we have it at birth. We just look how little kids are fast in learning things, crawling and learning to walk and learning to speak and learning to do what humans do. There's the intelligence derived from listening and learning. We get in school, in books, it's all the learned knowledge. There's the wisdom that comes from reflection, reasoning, thinking about, resolving what's unclear. So it's things we figure out and then become clear. 
and then there's meditative wisdom. It goes from sustained inquiry on a deep level through concentration and mindfulness and seeing clearly into the nature of things, into the nature of the mind. And it's this kind of, this last kind of wisdom or insight that is most essential in what we do here. It's not the only one necessary, but it's maybe the most important, ultimately. And it doesn't come so much from thinking about things, more the rises through a focused, sustained, continuous, silent, direct looking into the nature of things. It comes from being in touch very closely with what is. To becoming familiar with reality, doing inquiring, observing, sensing, feeling, staying in touch with actuality with the nature of experience. And that's why it's not so important what kind of experience we have. It's more important that we look into it, that we really inquire, that we look at its nature. And that nature we can discover in every kind of experience. In terms of practice, we could say that there are two main areas of wisdom or insight. One is discriminative wisdom. It's the ability to clearly see what is unwholesome and what is wholesome, what is unskillful and what is skillful in our thoughts and speech and action. To clearly discern what's leading to conflict and suffering, and what's leading to serenity, to happiness, and eventually to freedom. The other is wisdom that realizes the true nature of things. It's the ability to see the empty nature of things. See the empty nature of the mind, all experience, seeing through the illusion of a abiding, independent self-entity within ourselves, seeing through the illusion of any kind of abiding substance or essence within anything in the universe, within anything in our experience. And we could say that the two kinds of wisdom are operating on the two levels of reality, conventional and ultimate. In the first, the discriminative wisdom understands how conventional truth, the world of appearances, is functioning understands the laws of cause and effect, of karma, conditioned activity, understands the benefits and the limits of development. 
The second kind of wisdom sees through its apparent nature and realizes its ultimate nature, its essential emptiness. And so we could say that the first is concerned with happiness, with development of all good qualities, trust, love, compassion, joy. While the second one is concerned with the ultimate. And it's this that makes freedom and makes liberation possible. I'd like to close by <clears throat> reading a poem by a friend of mine whose name is Surya Das. He's completed his second three years retreat and it looks like he might be about to do his third one. On impermanence of life, and on the freedom that's possible. Life and death race like the weaver's shuttle. A mountain bird calls, its meaning is clear. While clouds come and go, the blue sky remains. Awakening after a dream, I gaze at auburn fields of autumn. What troubled my soul, I remember not. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.